Hello, everyone. This is Larry Michigan. Welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. a deadhead and not recognize that song from the opening note and uh we start off today with trucking and although by many accounts it's a fairly uh standard almost pedestrian dead tune it's one that always get great rejection from the crowd whenever they play it and the concert we're going to be focusing on today march 28th 1985 from nassau coliseum is significant not just because they play trucking but where they played it and that, ladies and gentlemen, was the show opener that you heard. The opening notes of Truckin' were the opening notes of that show. And there are not too many times in the Dead's history where they actually came out and opened a show with Truckin'. Certainly not uh, once we got into the 1980s. And uh, 85 is a great year. My co-host, Rob Hunt, who is not with us today or won't be with us next week, he is uh, on the continent, as you will, uh, getting at a little uh, end-of-the-winter-season skiing with his family and some well-earned and well-deserved R&R, and he may be able to check in with us, but otherwise we'll have him back in a couple of weeks. So today you just got me, and uh, we'll have some fun. We got a lot of good things to talk about, some interesting news stories about things that are going on in the cannabis world, and certainly this show from March 28th, 1985, and there are tons and tons of good moments. But again, I just like to really, uh, I'm a big fan of trucking, and I was lucky my first show I ever went to, they played trucking, and we were all very, very excited to hear it, and it was a lot of fun. And it pops up periodically throughout the uh, throughout their set list, so that you know, on any given tour, you're, you're likely to hear it five or six or seven times. But it's always well-received, and it's always a lot of fun. But when they play it to start a show, to me, that's just kind of cool because, you know, they're, they're coming out and they're in a feisty mood. And as you'll hear from one of our clips later on, they take the truck and then go to a whole different level, which again, for a show opener, is pretty exciting. However, before we dive into that, let's take a few minutes to focus a little bit on what's going on in the world of cannabis. There's always something going on. That's what we love about this industry. First and foremost is obviously a guy from Illinois here in lovely Northbrook, Illinois, the home of Michigan law, my day job, if you will, and that'll be significant later in the show. And so I have an opportunity to follow everything that's going on in the state of Illinois cannabis-wise. And it's been an extremely, extremely frustrating experience for us with adult use in Illinois. Not so much on the uh, actual customer side. There's adult use dispensaries that are open, uh, that are stocked, that citizens uh, can walk in off the street and go buy their cannabis products and everything that you would hope if you were in an adult use state and all the, the, the good fun that goes along with it. However, the adult use market in Illinois remains artificially uh, limited and restricted, and that's because the state has failed miserably in its duty to get out new licenses to people other than uh, the medical legacy folks. The, 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 the only people operating medical or, excuse me, adult use dispensaries in Illinois right now are the folks who were first originally awarded medical licenses back in 2014. And we're all grandfathered into the adult use program on a one plus where they could convert their current location if it's a dispensary into both adult use and medical. And then they could get one additional location for adult use only. 
And those are the dispensaries that's carrying Illinois, and those are the dispensaries that are sharing in the uh, one point this year, almost $7 billion for 2021 of revenue generated by the sales of marijuana in the state of Illinois. And while I'm very happy for those guys and, uh, you know, they, they, they do their job and they get paid and there's nothing wrong with that, there's also nothing wrong with getting more people involved in the game, both from the sense that this really is supposed to be an open program and available to everyone and not just the multi-state operators who were lucky enough, savvy enough, and um, determined enough. And, and I've given all of them credit before for uh, in, a, in a miserable medical market in Illinois, they all had the foresight to be able to go out and become players on the international stage, uh, to which I've always said good for them and certainly mean it. But here in Illinois, we can't just be limited to them and we need to have the opportunity to have more independent players on the scene and to get involved in the game. It's, it's good for anyone of a number of reasons, not the least of which is garnering support for this program throughout the state by letting people know everywhere that they can have a, a stake in this project and they can cultivate, they can infuse, they can sell, they can transport. But the more people we can get involved in it in Illinois, then the better it is overall for the state. And for those of us who are just excited to have uh, legal marijuana available, that's that's all we're ever really asking for. So that's a good thing. Um, but the state just couldn't get out of its way in terms of awarding these new licenses. And so dispensary licenses, which were supposed to have been awarded in April of 2020, have not been awarded. We're less than a month away from two years out from that date, and, and none of those dispensary licenses have been awarded. There's no indication as to whether they will be awarded anytime soon. There's ongoing litigation. There's all sorts of problems, and uh, those dispensary licenses are, remain on hold into the near future. On the craft grow, however, things are a little bit different. But first, it's important to to signify that I did say craft grow because the licenses that are being handed out now uh, on the cultivation side allow the licensees to cultivate marijuana on a growing space not greater than 5,000 square feet. Now, the the big guys, the medical people who have now become the adult use of market as well, they're allowed to grow on spaces up to 100,000 square feet. So it really kind of creates a little bit of a difficulty for the new kids on the block, you know, to be able to really go in and sustain and be able to get themselves up to that point. But in the wisdom of the Illinois legislature, that's what we have. Although there is a house bill pending in Illinois that would ultimately allow a craft grower to expand its its canopy space from 5,000 square feet, perhaps up to 14,000 square feet, which although three times as much as what they started with is still barely a fraction of the space that the Crescos and GTIs and Ferranos of the world here in Illinois are growing on. So it's a tricky proposition at best, but it's been saddled with the burden of not even being able to get up and get going. Those licenses were originally supposed to have been awarded in July of 2020. Uh, Now, there were uh, 40 licenses on the craft grow that were technically awarded uh, towards the end of last summer. And a few months ago, the Illinois Supreme Court declared that those licenses could go forward, although the Department of Agriculture could not issue any more licenses due to a pending injunction issued by a judge in Sangamon County, which is one of the counties outside of the Chicagoland area. And uh, what we just found out the other day is that the judge in Sangamon County has now gone ahead 
and issued a new ruling in her case. This is uh, Judge Gail Knoll, and she basically has gone in and reversed. Well, the first thing she did was she reversed the Illinois Department of Agriculture, who oversee the cultivation side. Uh, it had previously disqualified 11 applicants who had sought to be included in the original release of licenses. And after allowing them back in, she then lifted her previous injunction that was preventing the Department of Agriculture from ish- issuing any new craft grower license or announcing the recipients. Uh, So that's now going to allow up to 60 new licenses to be issued, and the department has said that it remains committed to ensuring that all licenses are issued in a fair and equitable manner, and that they are now preparing to notify the new winners of the fact that they now have an opportunity to have an adult-use craft grow license in Illinois. So that's exciting. And hopefully that will go well, and we will actually get uh, these 60 plus the other 40, so 100 new craft growers out there. Uh, At the very least, they will be able to add to the supply of marijuana that's available so that as more dispensaries come online, uh, there'll be plenty of product available for the dispensaries to purchase to be able to sell to their clientele all around the state. And hopefully it means that eventually we will get the same kind of freedom on the dispensary so that we can actually get those up and running. It's a long battle. It's taken a long time. And unfortunately, because this is Illinois, it's not ever fair to say that anything is over. And just as easily as Judge Knoll is willing to remove uh, her injunction, it's just as possible that there's another group out there that feels that that's the wrong way to go and they'll file their own appeal and could tie things down even more. So as we've been saying here for months, when the licenses are actually issued, when the stores are actually opening, I think then all of us will finally believe that Illinois is ready to kind of pull its head out of its backside and take a big step forward in this market and really take advantage of the large number of people in this state that will make Illinois immediately one of the top two or three certainly adult use markets in this country. So every little step forward is a victory. So thanks to Judge Knoll for lifting that injunction. And now hopefully the state will cooperate and we'll be able to move forward with that. So of course, this leads to the next question that everybody has, especially those who are uh, anti-marijuana, right? And that is, oh my goodness, here we go. Marijuana is going to be reduced, is going to be released legally. It's going to cause all sorts of problems. But most importantly, my kids, my teenagers, my preteens, even maybe, are all going to start smoking marijuana because now the logic would seem to suggest to most people that if a product was illegal and had a certain number of people smoking it, and becomes legal, then there's no blocking it, and there's no reason for that number not to grow. And every time that I have to give a presentation to a municipality, and I say have to because you would hope that the municipalities would be enlightened enough to understand that the opportunity to participate in something like the Illinois Illinois Adult Use Program would be a tremendous opportunity for them, but many of them see it the other way, and this is one of the main issues that comes up. We don't want our kids smoking marijuana. Uh, This will increase the number of our kids that smoke. So as we've mentioned before, there's there's a very standard comeback to that, and it works in any situation, anywhere, anytime, guaranteed, and that is you can look right back at the parents and say, your kids are already smoking marijuana. They don't need to get it from... Illinois adult use. They won't be able to get it from Illinois adult use. The, 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 the resources that are providing them their marijuana now have been there ever since you and I were that age when you and I were out going and buying our marijuana from the same people. So don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Don't be holier than thou. This is nothing different than what we've always seen. Your kids are getting high, just like the people who believe in abstinence want to believe their kids aren't having sex. But in fact, statistics show us that they are. So we know uh, that teenagers are going to smoke anyway. 
but let's go ahead and address the issue because it does seem to be one of these ones that people like to kick around a lot and use to their advantage. Well, recently, I think we can now say that we can put an end to this because a woman by the name of Nora Volkow, who is the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, was called to testify on this issue at a hearing before the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee. She did, as always people do, raise concerns about potential health risks of marijuana use overall or overuse, but made clear that the evidence that her organization has been able to compile does not support a common prohibitionist argument that reforming cannabis laws leads to increased underage consumption. Volkow said, specifically in the United States, legalization by some states of marijuana has not been associated with an increase in adolescent marijuana use. At the time Volkow was being questioned uh, by Senator Bill Cassidy uh, from Louisiana, his state recently decriminalized uh, marijuana possession, but they have not yet uh, gone with full-blown adult use uh, marijuana, although they, they do have also they do have a medical program. So of course Cassidy, Senator Cassidy taking the common position that people who don't want to believe the truth because they already have their own agenda says, well that surprises me because if you relax blue laws for alcohol for alcohol, there ends up being more alcohol used by adolescents in that given county or parish. In, in this instance apparently Cassidy was referring to policies in place in several states where alcohol purchasers are restricted or prohibited on certain days, usually Sundays as they relate to religion. However, Volkow came right back to say that although officials are seeing significant increase in adult use of marijuana, but not in adolescence, which is different exactly from what you were saying with the alcohol. Now, I do say that the alcohol argument that Cassidy makes is a red herring anyway, and it's a stupid argument that really doesn't deserve any credence whatsoever. Because when you're talking about relaxing blue laws, you're only really talking about one given day. So if you're relaxing the blue laws on Sunday, that doesn't address people's alcohol consumption for the rest of the week. It's an entirely different situation, but it certainly speaks to the fact uh, that as we've long stated, and, and the evidence shows overwhelming, that, that alcohol is a far greater, poses a far greater health risk to our country and is a much greater drug risk in terms of consumption and especially overconsumption than marijuana. And this is because of attitudes like this, where people just kind of take it for granted that, well, people drink alcohol, so since they do that, they must also be smoking marijuana. But unfortunately, for the prohibitionists when they stop taking an alarmist point of view and actually go back and look at the evidence and look at what our country's drug officials have to say. The evidence doesn't support that prohibitionist view. And, uh, you know, they're, they're really kind of left, I think, trying to go back and regroup and come up with a new argument because if you can't show that adult use increases teenage smoking then you don't really have a whole lot left in your arsenal, I think, for trying to ride all of the all the other overwhelming positive factors that we've often talked about uh, that come with the legalization of marijuana, increased violence, increased, excuse me, decreased violence, uh, violent crimes, decreased domestic abuse, decreased DUI, all sorts of things across the board because marijuana is just that much safer than alcohol and people who are high react in a much more cautionary and uh, mellow way, if you will, as opposed to people who get drunk and 
won a drag race against the first granny they pull up to at a stoplight after they've been at the bar all night. So none of this comes as a surprise to those of us who have been in the industry for a long time and uh, you know who ourselves have seen both from our own personal experiences and from the experiences of, of others that we know that you know the arguments that the prohibitionists make just never hold any water but it's a kind of a scare tactic because who doesn't want to protect their children but certainly it's okay to protect your children but only if there's really something to protect them from and in this instance the argument just doesn't just doesn't hold up uh, when put to any kind of examination and there's all sorts of literature out there on this uh, and anyone who continues to doubt this basic proposition, I would suggest that you go and read up on it. And if you're, you know, really interested in truth and facts and you're willing to accept what you see and based on the credentials of the people who are presenting it to you, then you'll have your answers. If you're not so inclined to accept that kind of information or, you know, if you're someone who's going to just go around and believe uh, conspiratorially that marijuana is a secret uh, agent uh, drug that's going to ruin all of us, then good luck to you, and there's nothing that I or anyone else can say. So I'm only speaking to the uh, reasonable people in the room. So there it's where we have currently on adult-use marijuana not being related in any way to an increase in teen use and perhaps even a decrease because, as we've also talked about, there's no teenage boy that thinks it's cool to smoke marijuana when he and his buddies are walking through the kitchen and his mom stops and says, Honey, I'm going down to the dispensary tonight to try to find something to help me sleep. What kind of marijuana do you and your buddies like to smoke? If that's not a glass of cold water on the whole situation, I don't know what is. Moving on, and, and again in a positive direction, and also keeping our focus on the National Institute of Drug Abuse, and Ms. Volkow, they are now renewing a push to promote federally funded research into marijuana as more states enact reforms. And basically what they're trying to do is look for different types of regulatory models and find regulatory models that they think can provide the best type of protection and the best way to run these programs on a state-by-state basis. Um, one of the great ironies that we run into is that one of the uh, admissions that the uh, National uh, Institute of Drug Abuse and its, its, its leader, Ms. Volkow, have had to come to grips with and have had to acknowledge is that as they attempt to demonstrate how marijuana can be safe incorporated into our society, certainly on the state level, and work to come up with standard regulatory schemes, they are prevented in their efforts or otherwise discouraged because... Marijuana, hypocritically and without any basis of any kind whatsoever, remains listed as a Schedule I controlled substance on the controlled substance list maintained by the feds. This is, again, thanks to our good friend, President Nixon, who was out to get John Lennon and the rest of the hippies, who he saw as a threat to his overreaching power. And so they, they created the, uh, the controlled substance list and immediately put marijuana on Schedule I at the very top even though at that time the, the evidence suggested that it was not as dangerous as heroin or some of the other LSD drugs that, that were on that list. But they didn't care, and that's where they put it, because they wanted to try and maximize the penalties for the people whom they rather neurotically believed to be their enemies in all of this. And, uh, you know, that's the irony. The folks who were smoking marijuana were, for the most part, uh, pretty mellow, and maybe they'd go down to their local draft board and scream and yell, but Nixon went after the wrong folks, and he ruined a generation or two of people by ensuring that any time they have a problem with marijuana, we go straight to Schedule 1 and the strictest penalties on the books, and that's why we hear case after case of 
people serving life sentences or 40 or 50 year sentences for possession of a couple of joints. Not so much anymore, but certainly cases from the 70s and, and 80s and some that still drag on today. And so, right, that's the irony that when we finally have a federal, federally funded group, a federal group that wants to step in and help create a framework that will allow the inevitable uh, takeover of marijuana in all of the states to move forward and to come up with something that will help all of them by, by coming up with a, a common regulatory scheme that will allow the states to work with one another on sharing information and how the laws are enforced and all of that. They can't even get their own research done because a large chunk of what they want to do is still prohibited because we're on a Schedule 1. So, you know, when you think about it like that, it's really enough to make you want to scream because it just doesn't give you any hope. As much as you'd like to think, wow, this is great, look what the NIDA is doing, but then you realize what they have to contend with. But I'm going to be a half-glass full guy and say I'm glad that they're moving forward with it. Um, sorry that the federal government is making it so difficult for them, but maybe they can join the, the, the growing choir of voices uh, that are really just screaming at the federal government, hey, you idiots, open your eyes and wake up, because you know and we all know that, you know, this is the emperor not wearing any clothes, and we know that and we see that, and it's really time to move on and, and let the rest of the world move forward and, and, and just no longer have to kind of suffer under this idiocracy and these, these stupid laws that serve no legitimate purpose for anyone anymore and just ruin lives along the way. So I'll get off of my soapbox now because that's enough preaching for one day, although that's what I'm sure you expect when you turn into a show called The Deadhead Cannabis Show. We're never going to be particularly sympathetic to the prohibitionists, although we will always patiently listen to their arguments and then almost immediately completely rebut them. But that is what it is. So now switching over to the music side of things, um, and we'll visit the uh, the Deadhead side of our logo for a little while. With COVID the last few years, obviously live music has taken a big hit. And while we're excited that the numbers are down in the United States to the point where most restrictions on, and rules are going away, uh, we do take note of the rising numbers in Europe and in Asia and certainly hope that that does not require us to go back to the lockdown measures we had, not because... It means because, you know, it, we see it as a, an assault on our liberties. You know, it, it, it's not a difficult, really, if you, if you want to be truly honest about it, it's not a difficult leap at all. And, and we're all smart enough to understand why something as simple as wearing a mask is a good thing, regardless of who proposes it and what our, you know, political slant may be. But really because we have to be concerned that the artists, you know, in their effort in, to take their best steps to try and ensure the safety for their audiences don't come to any conclusion that rising numbers suggest that, that, that shows have to be canceled again. So we're, we're going to keep our fingers crossed, but we got yet another uh, music festival that will join the long line of music festivals already out there and as if, as if Chicago doesn't already have enough with Lollapalooza and with Pitchfork this year at the end of August, we will now see the Sacred Roses, the first annual, first to be annual Sacred Roses Festival that's going to take place in Chicago, although not down on the lakefront uh, like Lollapalooza does and not out in one of the hip little uh, neighborhood parks like the Pitchfork, the Pitchfork Festival does. But rather, Sacred Roses is going to be out at SeatGeek Stadium, which is where the Chicago Fire, Chicago's uh, soccer team, professional soccer team plays. Uh, and for those of you familiar with Chicago geography, 
It's just a couple of miles past Midway Airport, southwest of the city. It can be a traffic nightmare, especially on a Friday. But once you get out there, it's a fairly nice-sized venue. They say they're going to have three separate stages going, and uh, they've got it set up in a way to avoid uh, sound bleed from one stage to another. They've certainly put together uh, a very impressive, impressive lineup of, of artists who are now committed to being there, including Phil Lesh and Friends, uh, War on Drugs, Black Pumas, Umphreys McGee, J-Rad, Goose is going to be there, uh, STS-9, Green Sky Bluegrass, Disco Biscuits, Kamase Washington, St. Paul and the Broken Bones, Punch Brothers, the Wood Brothers, Lettuce, Moon Taxi, Lotus, and, uh, and, and many more. So it, it really promises to be uh, a wonderful opportunity for those of us in the Chicago area to really get to see some great jam bands and other musical acts that are kind of similarly minded and that you might not necessarily catch at a uh, Lollapalooza festival. Uh, in fact, this would almost seem to be more in tune with a um, jazz fest festival type of lineup, although with the obvious missing all of the heavy Cajun and Creole and, and Bayou musical acts that you have at Jazz Fest, but but this is a great lineup of some of today's really uh, you know cutting edge musicians, and certainly in the case of folks like Phil Lesh, guys who've been doing it for a hell of a long time, and the tickets I know are selling out pretty fast, but it certainly seems to be one that folks who listen to our show uh, would be inclined to want to go see. For me personally, I'm going to be there, and I'm very excited because it will be my first opportunity to see Goose, and after hearing so much about Goose, uh, I look forward to a chance to really get out there and. Uh, see what they're all about and hear them, as well as most of the other bands that are on the on that list, most of whom I uh, very much enjoy seeing. And that'll be a lot of fun, too. So that's exciting news for the Chicago music scene, to have another festival like that added. And even if it may seem like overkill, for those of us who feel a little too old to go down and try and duke it out with the youngsters at Lollapalooza, this will be a nice opportunity uh, to see some of the music that we really love and some of the performers that really play the type of music that means the most to us and that, that, we, that we're always uh, looking to hear. Uh, and speaking of music that we are always looking to hear, let's let's swing back around now to the Grateful Dead for a few minutes here. And we go back to our show that we let off with from March 28, 1985, out in NASA. It's part of a three-night run out there. Uh, the NASA Coliseum, unfortunately, I never got to see the Grateful Dead there. It's a very, very famous venue for the Grateful Dead. Long Island Deadheads are their own unique brand of Deadheads, so much so that there's a noticeable difference almost in the level of uh, level in the attitudes of the, uh, the crowds between, let's say, seeing a show at Madison Square Garden garden versus seeing a show at Nassau County Coliseum. And I wish I could have gotten out to Nassau. It's the site of many, many, many historical dead shows, uh, not the least of which is the uh, very, very famous Brantford Marsalis show there. Uh, I believe it was 1989 or 90 in his uh, Eyes of the World that made it into, uh, without a net, the, the Dead's live CD and really kind of opened everybody up to the, the magic of... Uh, you know, the, the dead have the ability to put out pretty much anything they want, and we heard that, and it was just fantastic. And the fact that it was at Nassau is hardly surprising. Uh, Nassau is famous in the fish world, it's famous in the dead world, and a lot of bands uh, have always enjoyed playing there. So this was no no exception to the rule. When the dead showed up there in 1985, 85 was a fantastic year for the dead. It marked their 20th anniversary. In the summer of 85, the Dead did their 20th anniversary shows at the Greek Theater in Berkeley. I was lucky enough to be able to make it to those shows, and we've talked about some of them in the past, but perhaps uh, as we reach that point this year, we'll go back and revisit those a little bit again because you can never really talk about uh, a series of three shows that were as, as legendary as those. 
but but this just was indicative of the level of performance that the dead were at in 1985. They were they were uh, treating their audiences to great song selection. They were mixing up their songs a little bit, which explains how we wind up with a truck and to open the entire thing. And as I uh, kind of mentioned before. Uh, the next clip we're going to play right now tacks onto that truck and just as it's ending and really again takes the opening of this show to an entirely different level. Dan, you have that queued up for us? So what we have there is the dead coming out of trucking and making a transition into Smokestack Lightning. And Smokestack Lightning is an old Holland Wolf number from back in the day, an old blues tune. And it's, 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 it's a marvelous song that a long time ago, Bob Weir kind of co-opted and, and, and would tag on to the end of random versions of trucking. So you wouldn't get it every time, but every now and then you wouldn't. In the mid-1980s, you know, the frequency was greater uh, than at other times. And it's such a great tune, Smokestack Lightning, because it's, it's, it's such a classical blues tune. It's got so much energy to it. And uh, when the boys were on and really in a good mood, you know, they would play it. You get Bobby Howland at the moon with it and everything, and just really a whole lot of fun. But like I say, you know, typically you're expecting a truck and, you know, maybe leading into the space or coming out of the space. And at that point, the energy of a show is, you know, is already really, really up because, you know, hopefully you've been treated to that point, you know, to find music and, 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 and great stuff. But to just come right out of the door with a truck and, you know, that's to hit the audience like with a five-ton brick 30 seconds in and, you know, just really hope that they can be up and doing their thing and, and get into it. And you could tell from the audience tape how much they loved it, but then just as significantly, you know, to, to have the dead not just do trucking, uh, but to immediately then turn and jump into Smokestack Lightning, you, you know, in my opinion, just really, really takes the show right out of the box, you know, to a level that if you're there, you say, you know, oh my goodness, where are we going with this thing? And, and, and you know, how good can it be? Well, although we don't have a clip for this, but I can tell you that the folks who were there that night had their mind blown again because the dead came out of smokestack lightning and jumped right into high time. And high time is a tune that would typically make its way a little bit later in the first set, usually towards the very end. And it was not uncommon for high time to show up in the second set, usually in the pre-space section, but you know, it, it could kind of show up anywhere. But to have it show up so early in the show, you know, kind of really gave the very beginning of this first set a real second set feel. And, you know, to get to hear a trucking and everybody's all psyched. And then, oh, my goodness, they're going to do a smokestack for us and just have that roll right into a high time. You know, it's really hard to believe, you know, you can get an opener that's too much better. You know, Bobby takes us through the El Paso Cowboy tune. Jerry comes back with Peggio, a personal favorite of mine and always played well. Bobby comes back and breaks everybody's hearts again with Cassidy because it's just such a beautiful tune. And we all love it. It, it. It's truly a Bobby tune that even these days doesn't get played nearly enough. And back then was just wonderful. And especially uh, in the 80s when Brent was on the keyboards and he would join in the singing and he and Bobby could just harmonize so well on it. And really just a beautiful, beautiful tune. And then something that was a lot more common in the late 70s, really up through the late 70s and early 1980s, but by 1985, 
wasn't happening very much at all anymore, they close out the first set with a China Rider. So if you're at this show and, and you've started with a truck and smokestack high time and you close out with a Cassidy China Rider, I can imagine people there sitting and thinking, you know, what could possibly happen in the second set that, that could make this any, any better? And, you know, if you were a deadhead on tour with the dead in the mid-1980s, I can think of very, very few second set openers that at that type of a moment with expectations so high that the dead could play that could live up to those expectations. And in this instance, uh, they passed the test with flying colors because they come right out of that intermission right after their killer China rider to end the first set and drop a bomb on everybody in the second set with a huge scarlet fire. And the Scarlet itself is just excellent in terms of how well it's played, how tight it is. Again, this is 85. They're really firing on all cylinders with it. That's when we get to the uh, Greek theater shows, the 20th anniversary shows on the third night, they played a Scarlet Fire there that was one of the greatest I had ever seen. And uh, this Scarlet Fire does not disappoint. It comes roaring in on every level. The Scarlet is great. It's a 10 and a half minute version. And uh, then what comes at the end of the Scarlet is what we're going to listen to right now. If Dan, if you're ready to drop in our uh, next musical clip. Uh, again, any uh, dedicated deadhead knows that is the beautiful transition from Scarlet Fire into Fire on the Mountain. And in 1985, 84, 85, it was, it was just uh, so beautifully done. And, and we, we played that clip just a little bit longer because I wanted to make sure you could all hear uh, the little uh, twinkling of the uh, keyboard there by Brent as we get towards the end. And if you go to Dick's Picks number six, which is a show from Hartford in the fall of 1983. Again, there the intro into the Fire on the Mountain has that same little twinkling on the piano on the keyboard that, that Brent just did there. And it, it's such a great sound. It fits into it so well. It really kind of frames the song as they move into Fire on the Mountain. And there, there's few songs in the, in the, dead, in the, in the dead songbook that are, you know, the, that are just as big and powerful and fill up a room the way Fire on the Mountain does. And you know, when they're rocking like they are at this show and they and they dive into a fire after a hot scarlet, uh, scarlet begonias, you're just a lucky deadhead and you're just at the right place at the right time. And, you know, there's no doubt that it's wonderful to be there and to be part of all of that. 
and uh, you know, and, and get to hear where they go with it and, and what they do. They come out of all of that into a uh, very lovely looks like rain with a with a long extended jam on the back of it to take them through the drums and the space portion. 1985, so a song that was very hot at the time, "Give Me Some Lovin'," which we've heard and, and talked about in the past. Phil and and Brent team up on that tune, and the uh, the New Year's show '84 into '85, the third set was the first time they played. Give me some love. And again, I was lucky enough to be at that show and uh, we'll never forget that bass line from Phil. Do, 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 boom. Do, 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 boom. And just the entire room shaking every time he hit that, that, that huge bass note. And uh, it was a song that through 1985 and 86 got a lot of uh, playing time, uh, a little bit less as, as we went on. And uh, unfortunately, after Brent passed away, we, we, we never really heard it again. But it, it's such a wonderful tune to hear them play. And in this show, it's a great version of it. And then as short as the, uh, the, the set was leading into the drums on the post-space side, they come out big because they go from Give Me Some Lovin' into a killer other one that, that, that Bobby just nails. And, you know, people can say what they want about Bobby. And we've said good things about Bobby and critical things about Bobby. But the other one is Bobby's tune. And when he's on it, like he is in this show and he's playing it, that's a tune that can really take you back in time as well. And and he does a great job. They roll from there into Black Peter, which is another one we've talked about at length as the, oh no, they're playing Black Peter and not Morning Dew song. Although, as I like to point out in, in later years, the lyrics, especially of Black Peter, have taken on a, a, a newer, more significant meaning for me. And I imagine for most people my age, and it's just such a beautiful song that, you know, if I saw The Dead Today and Jerry played that instead of Morning Dew, I would be uh, more than satisfied. And then, of course, you know, closing it out with the greatest all-time show closing tune, and that's Sugar Magnolia, another great 10-and-a-half-minute version of it. In 1985, again, Bobby was sailing along, Sugar Mag was... You know, just that happy tune you would always play at the end of a great show, send everybody home with a smile. And they did. And now we're just, I'm going to touch really quickly on this because we're going to, the next musical clip, which is going to come on our way out the door here. So not quite yet. But that night for the encore, after this ultimately tremendous, fantastic show, the dead came out for their encore and they played Day Job. Now, for those of you who weren't seeing the Grateful Dead back in the day, day job back in the day, I get it. And at the end of such a great show, we're going to talk about this and then we'll listen to it on the way out at the end of the show. For their encore, the, day, the Grateful Dead play Day Job. Now, for those of you uh, who've never heard of Day Job or who are too young to know of Day Job, uh, Day Job was one of the quote-unquote new tunes that came out in the uh, mid-1980s as part of the whole flow of songs with the... Uh, Touch of Grey and Throwing Stones and, and all of those songs when they came out. And it was pretty much universally considered uh, to be the, the very worst of the group. And in fact, the, 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 the urban myth is, uh, and this is stated in Robert Hunter's uh, lyrics for all of his songs, even has a little line in there, that Day Job is the only song that the Grateful Dead ever retired at the request of the Deadheads. So it was just about as colossal of a failure in that regard as one can imagine. And after a great show, to have them come out and do a day job encore always kind of felt like a letdown. By comparison, you know, it made a U.S. blues seem towering and and, and, and wonderful and monumental. But if you were hoping for a uh, broke-down palace or, you know, anything, you know, any of the fun encores that they might do, Quinn the Eskimo, so many other options, to get day job always, always kind of felt maybe a little bit cheated. But... <clears throat> 
in light of what we've been saying lately about, just came up in our commentary last week on Bob Weir and playing Liberty and the, the, the reason, the, the prevalence of Dead and Company and, and a lot of these other dead conglomerations of one kind or another all really latching on to Liberty and playing Liberty. And we, I see Liberty as like the modern day day job in the sense that it's pretty much the song I think we'd all rather not hear except for that those 22-year-olds who were in front of me the other night at the Bob Weir concert who were all high-fiving each other the minute he started playing day, started playing Liberty. And I don't like to sit there and rag on Jerry or Robert Hunter or the dead or any of the deadheads who love it, but I think it's pretty safe to say that in my own very, very unscientific and small uh, study that I've done among my cohort of dead friends, there's none of us that like Liberty, and there's none of us that see it as having any very many redeeming qualities, whether it's, you know, because it was one of Garcia's last tunes, or, you know, where Hunter was trying to go with the lyrics, or who the hell knows. But I gotta tell you, by comparison, Day Job's a hard rocking number, and, you know, you may not like the lyrics to Day Job, the, the, the overall music may seem a little simplistic to deadheads who are used to more complex note structures from Jerry and the boys, but just listening to it, you know, to, to tee it up for today's show, and I thought, I would rather hear this than, than Liberty any day of the week. And if Bobby had come out the other night at the end of his show and played Day Job instead of Liberty, I might have still been disappointed that he wasn't playing something a little more exciting in that slot. But I wouldn't have been as disappointed as I was at Liberty. And so, again, for all of you out there who are big Liberty fans, sorry, you know, this is just my personal preference. This is what makes the world and the deadheads all go round and round as we can all debate and argue over what the good songs are, the songs that we don't like. I and mean, I'm certainly willing to have this debate with just about anybody because it's so subjective. I'll know I'll always be right and I don't have to worry about somebody convincing me otherwise. And I have been convinced otherwise, as I've said. I, days between seeing it at the 50th anniversary show and Dead and Company so many times got me to go back and, and listen to the Jerry versions and really gave me a new appreciation of it when Jerry's singing it very emotionally and his voice is cracking and we all love it. Uh, don't get the same feeling when Bobby sings it or Dead and Company sings it. So great tune for Jerry, not so great outside of Jerry. Liberty the same way. If you're going to play Liberty, for God's sakes, just play Day Job and, and we'll all be happy. So with that in mind, I would like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in today and joining us. Thank you to my wonderful uh, producer, Dan Humiston, uh, who is handling all of this today, recording and producing work from the lovely confines of Denver's airport, and uh, hopefully the internet worked just enough for him to be able to get to all of this recorded uh, so we can drop it for you folks on Monday and everybody can hear it. Join us next week uh, for two reasons. Number one, our guest is going to be Ian Monet, who plays in a, a dead tribute band. They've played at the Sweetwater Inn in Mill Valley, California, which, of course, as you know, is partially owned by Bob Weir. He's got some good stories for that. Ian also works at Google, and the chef at the Google headquarters where he works was the dead's touring chef for a number of years. And Ian has some fun stories that he's learned from the chef that he will also share with us. So that's one reason to tune in. But next week, we're going to talk about one of my all-time favorite Grateful Dead shows, and that's April 6, 1982, from the Spectrum in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And if you want to go listen to it between now and then, you should. I think it has probably the, the greatest shakedown street ever played by the Grateful Dead on it. Just a towering, towering shakedown street to open the second set. But the entire show is just so amazingly good. They're so on, it's so tight, and such a perfect example of a 1982 show that it begs to be listened to. It was released by the dead as one of their road trip in their road trip series of live shows and one of the later ones there's a 
picture of Ben Franklin right on the front of it for Philadelphia and all that kind of stuff. But we're going to be talking about that show. And like I say, it, it, it's a great show to to listen to. It's a great show to talk about. So between that and our and our guest, Ian, it's going to be a fun time. And then just one more time to make sure everybody's paying attention. The week after that, uh, so two weeks from today's show, uh, our guest is going to be Rob Bleatstein from the, the Grateful Dead Sirius XM station who introduces all of their concerts. He probably knows as much or more about their concerts than maybe anybody other than David Lemieux. He's written the liner notes uh, for one or two of the Dave's Pick series. And in fact, we're going to be doing, I believe it's Dave's Picks 27 that day, which is the Dead's 1978 show from William and Mary College. And, and that is one that Rob Bleatstein actually wrote the liner notes for. So, you know, what better to do than talk with a guy like Rob who knows the Dead inside and out about a show that's one of his all-time favorites and that the Dead came to him and said, hey, would you write the liner notes for us? Rob Rob Hunt, my co-host of Linnae Holdings, remains out next week uh, as his European ski travels continue. We wish him the best of luck and to stay safe and healthy out there, both on the ski slopes and uh, from any COVID that might be floating around in the air in Europe right now. But Rob will be back uh, uh, in time for us to interview Rob Bleatstein. And as I joked with him last week, well, of course he will be, because who would want to miss that interview? It's going to be great, and it's really going to be a lot of fun. So again, thanks to everyone today. On the way out the door now, we're going to have Dan spin uh, day job for you. You guys can listen to it and make your own judgments. Have a great week. This is Larry Mishkin. Have fun and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name is Kira Reed, and I'd like to invite you to be inspired by the women who are leading in the cannabis industry. Each week, we will discuss empowerment, leadership, and what it means to be a woman in charge in marijuana, hemp, and CBD. As the founder of the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, I have had the great pleasure to get to know many brilliant and talented women who are CEOs, executives, politicians, advocates, and community leaders that are focused on creating a cannabis economy that is just, fair, and equal. We'll learn how these women make decisions, how they navigate a predominantly male industry, and what they're doing to level the playing field for women. I hope you'll join us.